You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, so quick recap of the first two weeks, very quick. The first week we talked about docetism. Second week we talked about Ebionism. Again, I'm not really trying to get you to remember all the details, just the heretical impulses. And the first impulse with docetism, Gnosticism, uh, heresies like that is this this kind of temptation, if you will, to avoid anything that might involve suffering, anything that might involve risk, particularly particularly when it comes to love. So, remember for docetism, Jesus could not have died on the cross. That's something below anything that's spiritual. Um, and you can see how this, it's, it's too good, it's too pure. Blood, sweat, and tears cannot be involved with something too good and too pure. Uh, but you can see how this becomes cruel in that um, really the good life involves the risk of love, not being kind of holed up behind some imaginary uh, suffering-free zone. The second week we talked about Ebionism essentially the exact opposite heresy. Jesus was just a great man, not God. Uh, we all like this, right? We like the Nike, Nike commercials, just do it. Roger Bannister could break the four minute mile, so can I. Um, if you put your head down and really work, you can get it done. Uh, I'm from New York, that is the heretical impulse that we all have. If I just grind through this, if I hustle, I am going to end up on top. And you know, for some people that really works. Again, both of these impulses aren't completely bad, right? I'm not running into suffering. I'm not trying to be super lazy, at least hopefully not. Uh, but again, what's cruel about that is just, you are just never going to measure up to God's perfect standard. So that's docetism, Ebionism in a nutshell. I want to begin this class on Donatism in a little bit different of a way than we began the first two. Donatism is a heresy from, if Docetism and Ebionism start very early in the church, first and second centuries, they're, they don't, they're not just there, but that's where they really begin. Donatism is a heresy that doesn't really get going until the fourth century, and there's a very specific reason why. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into that reason in a second, but first let's talk about justification by grace through faith. Why are we talking about justification by grace through faith? Or what makes us right with God is not our striving, our works, but God makes us right with himself by virtue of what he's done on the cross. Obviously, this doctrine is not formulated until, what, the 16th century, so way later. But I think by looking at something closer to us, can help us understand this thing that's a little further away, something 1,500 years ago or more. So what is the doctrine of justification by grace through faith? I know you all know it because you're all Adventers, really smart, really theologically sophisticated. But in a nutshell, it's just kind of what I said. We are not justified by our works. We're not made right with God by what we bring to the equation. We're not good with God. That was all over New York uh, subway billboards for a little while. Are you good with God? Um, we are good with God, not by virtue of anything that we bring, but by the fact that Christ 
has died for us and loved us to the very end. That's why we sing that song, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's all on him, nothing on us. Now, I want to take this a step further. Justification by grace through faith doesn't just mean our works like good deeds as opposed to bad deeds, but the good news of being made right with God by virtue of what he's done is that we also are not saved by our perfect faith, right? I mean, sometimes we might confuse that. Justification by grace is through faith. And then we start to turn that by faith or through faith part into, I have to have right faith, correct faith, as if you and I would pretend like we've got it all figured out. So if we're made right with God, not by virtue of what we've done, nor by virtue of the fact that we have perfect faith, then this doctrine becomes all that much more a balm, right? This was, I mean, for me personally, this really touched me. My, my, my mom's Jewish. She became a Christian when I was really young. My dad's Catholic. And when I was growing up in the church, there were not many. It's, you know, it's always this way in churches, right? It's usually a few voices that are really loud, that get a disproportionate attention. And these voices in this context said that your father, who is a Roman Catholic, is not going to heaven because Catholics believe that we're saved by our works. And as a kid, you know, that's terrifying, right? It's your father. It's, you know, I was growing up in an evangelical church. I kind of affirmed, you know, we're made right with God by what Jesus has done, not by virtue of what I've done. But it was like, wow, this suddenly becomes not that good a news if it's like Christ other Christians who don't believe exactly the way I do about justification, well, then the they're going to hell. You, you see how this kind of narrows very quickly? It be, kind of becomes very rigorous. Like, well, I have to have, I have to cross all my T's and dot all my I's. And then it becomes just this anxiety producing thing just as much as justification by works was, right? If I do enough good deeds, if my bad deeds aren't so bad, then I'm saved. Well, on the flip side, this becomes this, well, if I believe all the right things and not the wrong things, then I'm made right with God. That's not what the reformers were doing. That's not what Luther was doing, not what Calvin was doing, not what any of them were trying to do. But you can see that temptation that's specific to us Protestants, or inclination, you might say. So when I, when I understood this, again, Protestant doctrine that we're made right by, with God because of what Jesus has done, this became kind of the ultimate balm of Gilead for me. This made me realize that, you know, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, the Baptist down the street, the Methodists over there, that we're Christians, right? We believe in Christ. Now, I'm not trying to say that the things that we differ are, are unimportant, right? Don't, don't hear that. I've, I've invited you to be discerning in this class, but I've also invited us not to be theological policemen. And here, what I think is the really good news of the Protestant Reformation, this notion that we are made right with God by virtue of what Jesus has done, means that you and I can be the most ecumenical Christians of all. Again, not putting aside the things that are important that we believe, but that we can be this kind of big tent or big umbrella where we're you know, together, arm in arm, as brothers and sisters of the kingdom. Now, I'm sure this is just as important in your context, but in the context like New York City, where to be a Christian is to really feel like you're in the minority. That might not actually be true. It's just not talked about as much. It really becomes very important for 
Tim Keller of a PCA church to be able to partner with Calvary St. George's, an Episcopal church, Methodist, Catholic, etc. Because we really are, we're all in this together. We are the beachhead of the kingdom of God together, despite all of our differences. So the reason why I'm getting into all of this is to say that what I'm about to talk about with Donatism is the exact opposite of this balm that I've just talked about. So let's talk about Donatism. Donatism, again, we talked about Docetism and Ebionism. Those are the first couple centuries of the church. Donatism doesn't become a thing until the fourth through, say, sixth centuries. So 300 to about 700 AD, they're around. Uh, and this is in Carthage in North Africa. And for all of you who are familiar with Augustine of Hippo, Augustine is a bishop right there in North Africa, and he's very well aware of the Donatists. In fact, he writes against them, and really, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of what he wrote, the church said no to Donatism. So, Donatists argued this. Now, let me, let me give a background before I say what they argued. During the persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire, there were certain governors who said, we're not going to kill you if you're Christian. It's enough if you merely hand over your scriptures. And in handing over the scriptures, and again, there aren't many scriptures. It's not like everyone owns one like we do today. If you hand over the scripture, that's a symbol essentially of you either recanting or you just saying you're willing to play ball, etc. So some clergy do this. Some bishops do this. And the Donatists start off on a really good foot. They do not hand over their scriptures. They are true to the faith once given. They do not recant. Now, after Christianity is an acceptable religion of the empire under Constantine I, all of these persecutions right, are undone. And I don't want to make too much of the persecutions. The persecutions are there, but they're under Diocletian's rule. They're, they're over here. It's not Christians weren't always persecuted, but during this time they were, and it was important. There was a, a visible sign that you were handing over, and the Donatists called these people traditores, which is where we get our word for traitor. Uh, but again, traitor comes at traditory just means you handed it over. So these Christian clergy handed over the scriptures to the Donatists. They, you know, they have recanted their faith. And there is no means of repentance for them. Uh, there might be, in the words of this time, you know, mortal sins that you can repent of. Maybe you can be forgiven this, but you most certainly cannot be a clergy person. And this nullifies everything that you've done. So any baptism, any time you've administered the sacraments, any ordinations, all of that is null and void. You can see how this becomes a little bit anxiety producing for if you've been ordained by someone who, and there was a whole lot of this back then, that person was a traditory. And we have no way of verifying that, but you could see how like, uh, if you don't like that person, it's pretty convenient to say that. Uh, but people who were baptized, people who have been receiving the sacraments for years, like has all of this been for nothing? Was my ordination invalid? And everyone I've ordained, are they, you know, invalid? Uh, so it becomes kind of this like, 
ooh, what, what's, what's going on here? So in a nutshell, the Donatists argued that Christian clergy must be faultless in their ministry to be effective and their prayers and sacraments to be valid. That's terrifying for me because uh, full disclosure, not faultless. Uh, these were, I mean, among other groups of Christians, it's not just the Donatists, were what we might call rigorists. The church is a place of saints, not sinners. Whereas again, Protestant Reformation, sinners and saints. Again, any kind of sacrament administered by these folks would be considered invalid. So, to not get into the weeds too much, which is the, you know, the tendency of, of teachers, um, the Donatists refused to accept the spiritual authority of a man who was consecrated bishop in North Africa, which led to this great big schism, this great big church split. And again, it was one of those, this guy was a traditory, he said he never did it, he said, she said, big church split happens over this. During this time, Augustine of Hippo is alive, and while he's writing against the Pelagians, which we'll talk about next week, he's writing against these people, he's writing very, you know, what we're for, not we're against as well, he says that the sacraments given by God, baptism, ordination, the Lord's Supper, etc., these are from God ex opero, opere operato. If you're a Latin scholar, you can probably say that better than I can. Um, but essentially what that means is, and I'm, I, I kind of hate when people use Latin, but this is a, va- you'll see this kind of all over now that we're talking about ex opere operato. And what that means, that means is that essentially from the work that's in being carried out, it's done. So what that means is, it's not contingent upon the moral character of the person administering the sacraments for the sacrament to be valid. Does that make sense? So it's not like, it's not that you want a minister, a bishop, a priest who is <laughs> a pretty terrible person, but it's all to say that, you know, despite Ben's flip ups, uh, when I'm presiding over the Eucharist and I hand it out, you are receiving, however we understand, you know, the, the, you know, the presence of Christ in the sacrament. Uh, when someone baptizes your child, like that baptism, whatever, however you interpret that to mean, it's, it's valid. Uh, the, the person who ordained me, uh, it's valid and I can do the sacraments. So, again, what Augustine is saying, contra the Donatists, is... The work of these priests, who may even have, not just those who allegedly did, who did, they can be restored to fellowship with God, again, because of Christ's work. These people could, can be put back in their offices, and what's more importantly, for the average person in the pew, you do not have to worry that because you've been under someone who handed over the scriptures, who who in their life did not act as a Christian, that that's valid for you as well. Now, this whole class has been about the cruelty of heresy. So why ultimately would I say Donatism 
is cruel. Well, I think what we'll see is that it's not too much different from what we'll talk about next week in more detail. We'll talk about Pelagianism next week. But for this week, what I really want to say is that, and unfortunately, this heretical impulse is very much alive and well in us today. Uh, just think about the last 500 years. I mean, when Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other, Martin Luther is kicked out. Martin Luther had no thought of, I'm going to leave the church Catholic, for lack of a better word. Again, small c. Uh, but So he gets kicked out, and that's one thing. And then, you know, a whole wave kind of get kicked out uh, in the happening. But, you know, shortly after the Reformation, and a lot of good stuff happens from here. I'm not saying it's it's bad, but... And there, there was, there was an effort among those of the Protestant Reformation to become one, to essentially lay aside all differences, theological, cultural. Um, England, the, the early Church of England was very much involved in this, but unfortunately, it didn't happen. And as we've seen in the last 150 years, 200 years in the U.S., I can't even, I tried to look up just how many denominations there are, and I got totally different figures depending on what site I looked at, but it's, you know, in the thousands, tens of thousands. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I grew up in a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. If you haven't heard that, it's like essentially kind of like a non-denominational church in like a small denomination. But we would consistently have a preacher come in there. A faction of the church didn't like that preacher. Uh, at least this, you know, I think kids actually see through this a little bit more than we adults. As a kid, I was just like, well, those people just don't seem to like him. And the excuse that was made up after, well, it seems more like it was about they didn't like him. So, again, this kind of impulse to say, not just, again, like these people's works don't line up with the kingdom, but with, with what I started with. These people's faith, the T's are not crossed, the I's are not dotted, so we've got a... Um, and what I would say in our own day is that it's just not helpful. It's actually poisonous to think that I am better than another Christian, that, you know, me and my Episcopal world, that I'm better than those in the Methodist world or vice versa, or even within your own denomination. I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't really important differences and I'm not saying there isn't a point at what, which you, you know, you could do no more. I mean, we, we do, say the Nicene Creed right after the sermon at our Eucharistic service, uh, really so that if you heard anything crazy from the pulpit, um, well, you'll hear, you'll hear the content of the Christian faith all over again. So again, like, you know, what really unites us? What, what really makes a Christian a Christian? And I think that we, looking back from the good news of the Protestant Reformation, that we are made right with God by virtue of what he's done, not by what we've done, and that includes, those works include the content of our faith. Uh, I know for a fact that I don't have everything right. Um, I, I used to say like, oh, I think I have 80% right and 20% I don't know about, but I don't know if that's true. Um, uh, I know I rest in, because I'm on the shoulders of those who've gone before me and I'm much more comfortable resting on what they've said than on what I'm gonna make up. <laughs> um, but again, this, what, it, what can be cruel, what can be poisonous about the tendency of Donatism is to really be 
become the exact thing I, did, I wanted us to watch out for, right? The temptation of even taking this class is to become that theological policeman who is looking under every nook and cranny for anything that sounds suspect. Um, again, I'm inviting you to be discerning, but also to remember for that humility to, if someone's affirming the creeds, um, if someone is affirming, of course, the scriptures, that, that goes without saying, but I need to say that. Um, that it actually becomes pretty toxic for us. It kind of undoes everything that we say, you know, we in a Protestant world like to talk about how like, oh, to be Catholic, like it's so scary because I have to be good enough. That's not actually what they say. Um, but yeah, some popular level Catholics talk about it that way. But isn't it just as scary to say, well, if you don't have the faith exactly right uh, and that makes me pretty scared within like my own little tradition um, so you know what I, I think I might end there and start up the conversations but again the why I love Augustine what I love about orthodoxy the real beauty of orthodoxy is that it is expansive it's a uh, it's not this unhip constricting thing uh, that's, you know, just trying to keep people out. In fact, as we've seen in the last three weeks, and especially this week, it was actually the thing saying, no, come on in. Have you not lived up to the Christian life? Well, come on in. Uh, and even for the folks who don't totally get this, we talked about this a little bit the other week, uh, Tertullian is not a saint because he kind of veers toward a certain heresy the end of his life. Justin Martyr, the martyr, right? He, you know, the way we think in our popular level thinking, like he became a martyr. Of course he's a saint, but well, he went a little too far over here. But what we're not saying in not calling them saints is that they're, they're cast out. They're a part of this. They're a part of this whole. And we too, again, that radio dial illustration I gave at the beginning, the Christian life, the thinking Christian life, a whole lot of the time is that old-fashioned radio dial. They're static. You're moving that radio dial. It's going to be coming clear. You've gone too far. It's staticky again. We're going. We're trying to find that equilibrium. Now, my only advice to all of you in all of this is to say that I would much prefer, not just for you, but for me, to rely on the work of those who've gone before us rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.